1: Well welcome and I want to thank you all for coming out on a Monday night to hear a discussion about life uh, at, and as a Christian in the context of a cultural minority. We're going to do several things tonight. Uh, first off I'm going to uh, introduce John a little bit in terms of his background and let him set the context in Australia and let him talk about his ministry at the Public Center or the Center for Public Christianity that's spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. I have no idea why we do that, you know? Why do we reverse the letters in the in the alphabet? I have no idea what, maybe it just takes that long to make it around the earth, I don't know. But anyway, um, so, uh, and he's gonna share some stuff, we're gonna share some stuff that the center has produced so you can get a feel for that, introduce you to their website. And then we're gonna talk a little bit about um, doing, uh, sharing the gospel in, in the context of being a cultural minority and then after that there'll be some time for question and answers from the floor and then if you aren't exhausted by then we're gonna move from table to table so this is gonna have the same format as we had when Ed Stetzer was here in November and I'm pleased to announce to you that our plan is to do one of these dinners every semester so (laughs) Uh, you all have shown that there is an interest, and so you—you know—you—you you didn't know that there was a test of the emergency broadcast system tonight, and you all passed. So you can pat yourselves on the back. Uh, when the next one comes, and be sure and attend then as well. So, John, let's dive in. Uh, John is my host when I go to Australia. I usually do some taping and various gigs with him when I'm up there. I never know what they're going to ask me until I get there, but the exciting thing is, is that he takes me out for cultural jaunts. Uh, we've done Aussie Rules football together. Uh, gone to see the, the Sydney Swans, which is my team of choice in Australia, so uh, so it's, no one knows what that means, right? And so anyway, but you didn't know who the Green Bay Packers were, right? No, so, so not
2: until 2012.
1: Not until 2000. I'll let you tell that story. Tell the story about about how you discovered how the Green Bay who the Green Bay Packers were.
2: <laughs> I get an email one day, uh, and it has a signature down the bottom, Green Bay Packers, and it was an invitation to go and speak to this football team. And, yeah, and, um, <laughs> but, but the thing is I, I honestly had no idea, I'd never heard that name <laughs> and um, I really didn't know if they were an amateur team and this was, this was like a nice sweet invitation to come and speak to a local football club, <laughs> seriously. So I text my son who knows all things sporting and I said I've just been invited to speak to this Green Bay Packers team, are they any good?
3: <laughs> and I
2: still have the text I still have the text Within about three seconds He, he replies
4: What? No,
2: no They just won the Super Bowl last year blah, blah, blah. Can I come? <laughs> so uh, he, he came He came with me uh, And um, Yeah <laughs> But When I uh, Went to the Packers And I spoke to them On a Saturday evening Before the Sunday game uh I'm in a room with them and I, they just look like fit young boys to me,
1: you know, uh, very fit and uh, very big. big, Big,
2: um, before they all came in it, the seat, the seats for them were, uh, like really wide apart and it just looked weird, but when they came in, it looked appropriate. Normal. <laughs> um, but the thing is, I, I had no idea who any of them uh, were. I kept on, kept on, kept on calling Aaron Rodgers Andrew. <laughs> um, uh, but, of course, Josh was,
1: you know, he, could, he knew all the names. And. Mm-hmm. So how did we get there? Because we were trying to demonstrate just how committed you are to scholarship. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. Now, I, I'm, I have become a Green Bay Packers fan mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, the next day I'm at Lambeau Field uh, you know and and I've each time I come to the US now I go to the Packers
1: makes pilgrimage so he's almost American Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) well uh, let's let's I mean let's talk about what what you do you 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 grew up as an academic studying classics at at Macquarie University and uh, uh, but then you ended up in this Center for Public Christianity explain what that is
2: It's a group of scholars uh, who are passionate about communication with a world that doesn't believe and thinks there are reasons not to. So we got together about eight years ago, although our vision was many years ago, we always wanted to do something like this. But the funding opportunity came uh, eight years ago. And so we just immediately started Group of Scholar Communicators and thought, We want to produce a website that answers people's questions. We want to produce um, books and DVDs and so on. And we want to engage the public media, the the mainstream media. And we really didn't know whether this would work as an idea because there hadn't been many Christian attempts to engage the media um, as in write full articles and submit them to the newspapers and... um, uh, it, it worked a treat. We were amazed. I mean, our mainstream media is quite left-leaning. It's... Um, our mainstream media is very much like sort of CNN. We don't have a fox
1: mm-hmm.
2: in... Um,
1: there's no fox in Australia.
2: There's no fox in Australia.
1: Uh,
2: in terms of like that, you know, that... Am I in trouble now? That, um,
1: oh, I'm just watching you go, so okay. just go for it.
2: Well, <laughs> my my observation is that fox... Is uh, conservative and uh, reasonably positive toward Christian things, mm-hmm. and CNN isn't. Am I right? It's close enough. Okay. <laughs> and uh, most of our media is more like CNN. Okay. Uh, and uh, and maybe even more left with with some of them. Anyway, so we thought, oh no, you know, maybe this isn't going to work, but it has it has worked so well. Um, we are published regularly. We're invited. Uh, onto radio and TV, uh, reasonably regularly. It, it seems to us that the media is mainly ignorant, not um, out to get Christians.
1: Yeah, I mean they, they they do so well that when I came to Australia the last time, I did a gig for them on Australian Broadcasting Company with Australian Broadcasting Company, and the topic was hell. So it was a great. We deliberately
2: gave it to Daryl. That's
1: exactly right. So uh, let's let the burning American take care of that one, anyway.
2: So um, didn't we also give you a radio gig at like four in the morning? Yeah,
1: I think you did that. That was for Christmas. Yeah, yeah. yeah, We're gonna be up opening presents, but you can do it at four in the morning
3: from Dallas. So
1: yeah, so. Yeah, so it's been fun. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about the situation in Australia. What is this, how, Where does Christianity reside culturally in terms of demographics in Australia? Well, uh, more than half the country
2: ticks Christian uh, on, on their mm-hmm. census box. So there's a real cultural memory that Christianity is the, the religion Australia's got most association with. But the church attendance is 15% uh, in the regular category, and regular category is once a month.
0: So and that's everybody. That's and that includes everybody Roman everybody. Catholics, yeah.
2: Orthodox, uh, Liberal Anglicans, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, so, fifteen uh, percent once a month—it's it's pretty it's pretty low. Mm-hmm. The 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 Evangelicals uh, would be a very small portion of that.
1: So you definitely are functioning as a cultural minority in in Australia. Yeah. And the and the tone of what you do. What let's talk about. You use the word. We just did a podcast. Um, you just use the word generous, um, uh, which isn't a normal word we would associate with with apologetics and engagement, not necessarily all the time. So, what do you mean by generous engagement?
2: I guess it means uh, firstly just listening. I mean, it's an act of generosity to listen to what someone's complaint is before you answer it. <laughs> generous thing to do uh, Mm. and feel the problem nearly always in what CPX does whether in the media or the stuff on our own website you'll hear us conceding the problem before we try and offer any uh, contribution and that's not a a strategy that we don't um, see that as a kind of trick it wouldn't be cool if we concede and then get them with the right hook (laughs) Um, we we sympathise with uh, sceptical people.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So uh, I think out of that sympathy, which is a f- kind of generosity, uh, we really do feel when people put the questions to us. And so we, we do want to acknowledge always that, that most people aren't idiots. Uh, most people who aren't Christians, uh, they're not idiots. Uh, and so they've got complaints or bad experiences. And so you've got to... Uh, You've got to engage with that. But the other part of generous, I think, is when you give uh, your perspective, it's from um, a non-defensive posture Mm -hmm. uh, and doesn't speak with any air of entitlement as if, you know, this is a Christian country and you better listen to me because I'm the church after all, Mm -hmm. which really puts people's backs up in Australia. I mean, maybe it goes down a treat here with the non-Christian world, mm-hmm. uh, but not, uh, not in Australia. So that air of entitlement we try and shoot all the time. And so all of that means generous, is what I mean by generous.
1: Okay. Now, what we're going to do is I want to show two clips. I'm going to show, go ahead and show them back to back. The first is going to sh- tell you a little bit about the Center for Public Christianity. You get a feel for what they do. It's an encouragement to you to go to publicchristianity.org, which is the website in which there are tons of resources that are available. And then I'm going to give you a sample of one of those resources that deals with with a particular uh, piece that went viral on the net called Zeitgeist. Many of you may be familiar with that. It's an assessment of the Zeitgeist uh, video. That's going to be Chris Forbes, who also teaches at Macquarie and uh, teaches classics at Macquarie. And so we're gonna do those back to back. So if the video
4: team will gear up with the video, we'll do the Christian faith surges ahead in some parts of the world. In the West, there's a growing skepticism, even hostility towards religious faith and Christianity in particular. There is a great need for clear, thoughtful, public engagement about the Christian message. Hello I'm Lee Hatcher and I'd like to introduce you to CPX, the Centre for Public Christianity. Since its founding in 2007, the Centre for Public Christianity has gained a reputation for producing high-quality considered, balanced and accessible material which is featured in newspapers, websites, radio and television. CPX has four main areas of work. First, writing for a range of mainstream publications and regular appearances on radio and television, providing Christian comment on the major issues facing our society.
3: The other thing I'd want to add to that is that sometimes religion is the sole reason for issuing a restraint and compassion and not get involved in conflict. We see that in historical
2: examples for hmm. frequently. Sure. Here is a physicist telling us about something that all of us think sounds like something and saying by some magical change of the English language. No, it's nothing. And if you disagree with me, then you don't understand science. But there are scientists, leading scientists, who agree this ain't nothing. It's a very complex and beautiful something. That's a very damaging thing to say. Oh, no, it's horrible. I think it's because we're operating with this view of Christianity in particular that's about rules. And if you step out of line, you better watch out.
3: You do need to distinguish between the religions rather than lump them all together, so I think that's really They're not all the important. Same. They're not all the
4: same. Second, staff and fellows speak at universities, schools, conferences and corporations.
1: But such a privileged
2: viewpoint is exactly what the comparative approach denies to every other faith-based perspective. So while such an approach is thought to be more objective, it's
4: unclear to me whether it takes its own biases into account. And they organise public events for major international speakers. Leibniz, Spinoza, Kant, Hegel, Locke, Berkeley saw the origin of the universe as lying at a transcendent reality. The state should neither be religious nor it should be secular, but it should be neutral. And more precisely, I think, it should be impartial. Impartial toward all overarching interpretations of life. Third, CPX works with leading academics from around the world to develop Christian perspectives on a broad range of issues. Much of this work ends up in an online library of resources and is made available for
3: free. It's fair to say that half this country actively believes themselves to be Christian.
0: Christianity has a particular problem because I think many people in Australia are bored with Christianity they think they know what it is and in fact they have no idea
1: the idea that we're just blind believers uh, where scientists have proof for everything is uh, completely wrong
2: if it's not Christianity with your sleeves rolled up, then what what species of faith is it? What is that? And I'm not interested in that. Seeking pleasure and avoiding pain, that's a very selfish attitude. And I don't believe that selfishness gets you very far in the happiness business at all. You have to avoid extremes. You have to avoid the extreme of solely excluding religion. You also have to avoid the extreme of excluding reason. If it's not religion, it'll be something, you know, a belief in the free market or in astrology or superstition or conspiracy theories. The
4: Bible has stood the scrutiny of the finest minds of over 20 centuries and is still standing. Finally, CPX publishes a range of books and DVDs that highlight the relevance of the Christian faith today. I'm proud to be involved with this exciting young organization as it seeks to present the truth, beauty, and goodness of Christianity with well-researched print, video, and audio material about the relevance of Christianity in the 21st century.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter, Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more.
2: Zeitgeist, from the German spirit of the age, is an immensely popular movie that can be viewed all over the Internet. It has millions of hits and has extreme popular appeal, especially to those who are into a good conspiracy theory. Now, the second half of the film is an elaborate portrayal of the 9-11 tragedy as the work of the American government itself. But the first half calls into question the entire story of Christianity. Centuries of Christian history are swept away as the narrator explains that the whole thing is one large myth. Large historical claims are made that, if true, do mean it's all over for those wanting to place any hope in Jesus as someone relevant to today. To get some wisdom on this complicated topic, we've asked into the studio Dr Chris Forbes, a senior lecturer in the Ancient History Department at Macquarie University in Sydney. Dr Forbes is a specialist in the history of Greek thought and religion Alexander the Great, and New Testament history. Chris, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. You've seen The Zeitgeist. Uh, What led you, an ancient historian, to watch this internet movie, and and what was your initial reaction?
3: Well, I first heard of it because my daughter was spending five months studying in Russia. Uh, She was at St. Petersburg, and Christian friends of hers there were getting a really hard time by people making claims from the movie, and she emailed me and said, what can you find out about it? So I had a look.
2: And your response?
3: Well, I ended up almost laughing because the claims it makes are mostly wildly wrong and in some cases, simply silly.
2: Can can we focus in on what is really the heart of the claim of the movie as it connects with Jesus? And that is that the whole Jesus story of him being born right through to his crucifixion and resurrection is a mishmash of ancient mythologies. In particular, the mythology of the sun god of Egypt Horus, we're told, John,
3: can I stop you there? Horus isn't a sun god.
2: Okay, but the movie says that he is.
3: Yes, it does.
2: But he's not. What sort of (laughs) god was he?
3: He's the god of the sky. Ra is the sun god.
2: Okay. That makes the connection between him being a sun god and Jesus being the son of God uh, more difficult, doesn't it?
3: I thought it was only a pun to start with. I mean, the son of God, S-U-N-S-O-N... It's a perfectly good pun in English. Well, it's a fairly bad pun in English, but it doesn't work in Egyptian and it doesn't work in Greek and it doesn't work in Latin, it's okay. just a pun. So
2: leaving all that aside, yeah, uh, the, the claims about this particular sky god then, mm. Horus, um, are that he was born on December 25th, he was adored by three kings, he grew up, he had 12 disciples, uh, he was crucified and then he was resurrected. Well, that sounds like the Jesus story.
3: It does, because that's what it is but it's not the horus story oh by the way you left out born of a virgin Uh, born of a virgin indeed yes except that his mother isis wasn't a virgin and there's no suggestion in the egyptian sources that she was this whole list of parallels are true of jesus aren't actually true of horus at all
2: the ancient sources don't mention these details
3: it's pretty unlikely that the ancient egyptians would say that horus was born on december the 25th because December is a Latin month and their calendar is completely different. Was Horus crucified and raised from the dead? No, Horus wasn't crucified. Horus wasn't killed at all. Osiris was killed. Betrayed and killed by his brother Set, who then cut up his body into very small pieces and had them scattered all over Egypt so they couldn't be patched back together and resuscitated. And the rest of the myth of Osiris is about Isis gathering the pieces of his body, binding them up with bandages so that he can become the first mummy and therefore be resuscitated. But all of that happens not in historical time. That all happens in the Egyptian equivalent of the dream time, in mythological time.
2: I guess the punchline of the Zeitgeist movie as it connects with Jesus is that because the Jesus story is just a mythical construct which you're saying it isn't, um, the movie is saying he didn't exist, he's not a historical figure Does that have currency in um, serious historical research today?
3: No, there's no serious question for historians that Jesus actually lived. There's real issues about whether he is really the way the Bible described him. There's real issues about particular incidents in his life, but no serious ancient historian doubts that Jesus was a real person, really living in Galilee in the first century. The movie in its list of
2: references, if you
3: get the transcript, some characters pop up, some
2: scholars pop up, and it gives this sense that it is an authoritative movie, like Gerald Macy, uh, G.A. Wells.
3: Gerald Macy, English poet and amateur Egyptologist. Not an expert, not an academic, not actually an historian at all. G.A. Wells, ah, an academic, yes, professor of German literature writer of popular books trying to claim that jesus is a myth but he's not a historian did you
2: find any serious historical work in the list of references
3: not a single one what i found is a whole list of books claiming by to be written by experts quoting other people claiming to be experts quoting actually none of the ancient evidence at all
2: and yet a lot of people have been enamored uh, with this movie or deeply troubled by it What is your advice to them?
3: Can I be awfully blunt? Don't believe everything you see on YouTube.
2: (laughs) Uh, Given that this interview will also be on YouTube, uh, (laughs) um, have you got any further advice for them? Yes.
3: Check references. Go looking for ancient evidence. If somebody claims something about Horus or Mithras or Dionysus, if they're only quoting another modern author, or in the case of Massey, someone writing in the 19th century, that's not good enough. What historians want to know is not do you quote historians. They want to know, can you quote ancient evidence? And there's simply no ancient evidence that Horus or Mithras or Dionysus was born on the 25th of December, born of a virgin, crucified. The ancient stories simply don't say that about them. So the parallels with Jesus just collapse. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure.
1: That's how you kill zeitgeist in about seven minutes. <laughs> there's, there's no geist in that zeit. Anyway, so um, it's that's a sample of the type of thing that that you all do at CP you call it CPX for for as an abbreviation yes yeah. so for, X is a Greek Chi for Christianity yeah yeah um, and and that's a sample of, of what we're talking about and I thought you ought to get a sample the, the site is literally loaded with resources like that covering all kinds of, of topics um, there they're very much is a mirroring of what um, John is doing in Australia with what we are trying to do here in terms of the production of resources. The one difference is they do a lot of what we call short form in media. Very short, crisp, you know, 5, 7, 10 minute types of things. They do some documentaries as well. We've opted for a longer form uh, in our podcast that we split up. But the basic approach is very, very similar as is the tone, And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about is talking about the tone of engagement and in wrestling through that. Let's talk about uh, let's talk a little bit about terminology. And uh, now we spent a lot of time on the podcast going through several examples for you all tonight. I just want to talk about one. Um, and that is talking about truth and beauty. And one of the things that we have talked about amongst ourselves and that we're trying to do is thinking about how do you translate um, terms, particularly problematic terms or difficult terms, into discourse that you have with someone who isn't – who is – uh, a doubter or a believer, or, or, or not a believer, but asking questions, a skeptic, that kind of thing. How do you how do you translate theology into the language that a person might be able to hear? And one of the interesting terms I think that is that has that CPX has played with is the term beauty, um, and in particular thinking about beauty in relationship to the concept of truth. Um, You know, truth, as as you all know, living in the shifting times that we're in, and and particularly in association with postmodernism, is coming up for a hard time. Uh, uh, And so the idea of a truth from above or a, a comprehensive truth struggles to gain merit. Well, one of the ways that CPX has tried to get at truth without dropping the idea of conviction and that there are things that the Bible says is to talk about the concept of beauty. And John, why don't you elaborate on how that works?
2: For us, beauty is a very broad concept. We don't just mean pretty. <laughs> uh, we mean the goodness, the attractiveness, the wholeness of, of, of an idea. And of course, it's the Bible's first theme, really. <laughs> um, once you get past that there's a god. Uh <laughs> you know that sevenfold repetition after every creative act. It was good. It was good. It was good. And down it goes seven times and the seventh time it was very good. And uh this seems to be well of course it's deliberate. Mm-hmm. And it's deliberately saying that this creation has come from an orderly mind. It is Good. You you could have had the word beautiful in the sense that we mean it. Mm -hmm. That the order and purposefulness that one observes or intuits about the universe is real, says Genesis 1. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing is that the, the new atheists have very recently spotted that they have a beauty problem. Uh, I don't mean that Richard Dawkins isn't a very pleasant looking gentleman. (laughs) Um, It really has dawned on them that the rational, the sort of perceived cold rational approach that, that they're famous for isn't cutting it with people and that they've given the impression that science and rationalism kills the aesthetic of life, kills the goodness that we intuit, the the beauty that we intuit. And so you have seen just in the very last few years, Dawkins, uh, Sam Harris, uh, Lawrence Krauss, who I uh, was on TV with there, talk about the wonder and beauty that science gives you. I think it's a bit of a sham because they've got to the point where they're basically saying that the sum total of beauty, the sum total of the experience of wonder that you have from science is a mammalian chemical instinct responding to external stimuli. So they want to say you can look at a sunset and understand a sunset and that's wonder. No, that is no different in status from the chemical reaction that occurs when a rock drops on my toe. There's no way of distinguishing (laughs) them. They're both mammalian chemical reactions to external stimuli. Where I'm going with this is that only a worldview like the Judeo-Christian worldview can ground beauty, the intuitions we have for the orderliness and purposefulness of, of existence, in reality, the reality that all of this stuff is intended. So that instinct you have for the good and the beautiful is not just an instinct. It is actually grounded in the fact that this universe reflects the divine mind. And so I think Christianity has a, is a serious advantage in describing for people how goodness and beauty are there and they're intended to be there and they're grounded in ultimate reality this is something of course c.s lewis and before him gk chesterton uh, were all about they wanted to convince you that christianity was not only logos true uh, but that it was also pathos and ethos that it was also um, attractive and good
1: so this is, this is a way into having a conversation to get people to think about truth but to do it through a different kind of lens that gives them pause and where there's instinctive reaction, you know, when you see a beautiful sunset or you, you go to the beautiful landscapes that, that really mark out, you know, both, our, both of our countries um, and, and you stare and you go, that's amazing, um, that, that, it, that there's something about it that's there. Yeah, because if you're really a consistent
2: Richard Dawkins, you've got to look at the sunset, feel the feeling, and then remind yourself that really it's just a mammalian chemical reaction to an external stimuli. Kind oh, of take something out of it. <laughs> um, whereas, whereas someone with a with a theistic, a personal theistic worldview, goes, "That's intended," mm-hmm. and and these instincts uh have come from from the hand of of an artist i was uh, we was talking earlier today about the famous atheist a uh, british intellectual an wilson who wrote scathing things about c.s. lewis and um and and jesus very very much in the the center of the intelligentsia in britain has recently become a christian um well an anglican Um,
1: (laughs) um, don't go there
2: (laughs) I I am an Anglican and when he wrote his uh, his story of conversion he 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 describes it's really interesting actually because he describes how difficult it was for him to give up his status within that Intelligentsia set hmm. by becoming a, a weird God believer and more than that, a Jesus God believer hmm. who attended church. But but he says in this New Statesman article that where he describes his conversion that it was music that that in the end convinced him he had a problem because um, he he said it's an it's an analogy to the moral <laughs> argument. Hmm. Um, he wanted to believe that his humanitarian instincts were grounded, but he couldn't think of any way to ground them as an atheist. And then he was listening to some Mozart I think it was one day, and he thought, my goodness, not only can I not ground my moral instincts, I can't ground my instinct for beauty either. And he thought, that that's impossible. I have to believe that this musical experience is grounded in a reality, that it is intended, that that my experience of this music cannot just be a mammalian uh, stimuli. And so that led him to theism and then you know, to Jesus theism.
0: Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash thetable. Join us next week for part two. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well.